seated. Please turn to the beginning. The beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. The beginning of everything, as a matter of fact, as far as the content goes and what we will be studying together, Lord willing, over these weeks and months to come. Genesis means beginnings. That's the Greek word for beginnings or beginning. And so it's a very fitting name for the first book of the Bible, the foundation of it all. Uh, And here we are introduced in the first verses to the maker of heaven and earth. Um, Nothing could be more profound than what we study here. It's the foundation for everything else that comes in the scriptures. Uh, When the Westminster divines, those who put together our Westminster Confession, when they wrote describing scripture, certainly Genesis would have been at the forefront of their mind when they wrote the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments that abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Genesis is a divine masterpiece. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar, said, No work that is known to us from the ancient Near East is remotely comparable in scope to say nothing of less measurable qualities with the book of Genesis, perfectly and carefully designed to display the glory of God, especially in these opening chapters, the first 11 chapters that will be our focus. It recounts prehistory or primeval history. A.W. Pink captures it in only the way he can. He says, not all the combined skill of the greatest literary geniuses, historians, poets, or philosophers this world has ever produced could design a composition which began to equal Genesis 1. It is unrivaled, and nothing can be found in the whole realm of literature which can be compared with it for a moment. It stands in a class all by itself. And through this display of God's glory in the book of Genesis, we come to know who God is, who we are, and what our purpose is. So let's begin as I read the first two verses This is an introductory sermon for this series, so we'll cover a lot of important information that you may not know. Maybe you know it. It'll be a refresher, but we'll start digging in deep with some key questions answered as we look at Genesis 1 through 11 in particular, at least for the first part of our study. This is God's holy word. It's inspired, and it's inerrant. It's authoritative as a result. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, as we begin to study Genesis, I pray for your Spirit's help so that we can understand your truth and then what we should do in light of what is revealed. I pray for insight and for clarity as we read your sacred text. I pray that our lives would be conformed to Scripture, that it would be conformed by what you reveal to us. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Today we begin our study of Genesis 1 through 11, and this is a bit of an introduction. Now, you can divide the whole book of Genesis, 50 chapters, into two parts. They're not equal parts, but two parts. 1 through 11 is called the primeval history, the history of the earth in the early generations. 
Then starting in chapter 12 with the introduction of Abraham to chapter 50, you have the patriarchs, and it's more particular now to the history of Israel. Of course, Genesis lays the backdrop for us to understand really man's predicament. I mean, the most pragmatic reason is that we can understand the mess we're in and why it's so, uh, where it came from and why it's the way it is and where we will go in God's plan, what God is planning to do. All of this is revealed in foundational form in the book of Genesis. So we'll start with the first 11 chapters over the course of this next calendar year. Um, I'll mostly go right through the passages, but there will be a few times where we'll stop and focus on a particular subject that's been raised. Like when we get to the end of chapter 1 and we learn that men and women are created in the image of God, uh, that will require a little more time to unpack that in Scripture because it's introduced in Genesis, then we come to learn more about what that means in the rest of the Scriptures. So we'll have mostly walk through the passage, the passages with just a few short stops to really focus on some particular doctrine or teaching that's important for us to focus more on as we work through. In these first 11 chapters, there's lots there. Foundations and generations, from Adam to Noah, the sons of Noah, um, into the Tower of Babel, eventually Terah, and then Abram is the last person we will meet right as we begin chapter 12. Then we'll take some time in another book and then come back to 12 to 50 whenever the Lord wills. We'll see how that works time-wise. Genesis 1 through 11 tells of the Garden of Eden, the days of the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Genesis 1 through 11 lays the foundations for the doctrines of God, mankind, the fall, God's plan for redemption, judgment, grace, just to name a few of these. It's about origins, about marriage, family, sexuality, government, just to name a few of the things that are broached in the first 11 chapters alone of Genesis. This is why it's beginnings or origins, foundations, and generations. Now, as good Bible students, let's ask a few important questions of the text that is before us as we start to work through it. These questions help us interpret as we go. These are good questions to ask of any passage you're reading, and you can certainly do this on your own as you're reading the Bible. We'll start by asking, who wrote Genesis? Who's the main author of this book that we have? I say main author because we know the author couldn't record his own death, so Joshua has to finish some of those portions. Samuel is said to have put together some of the annals that are here in the book of Genesis. But who's the main author of Genesis? Who's the original audience? Who are the first people who read this passage or these passages? Who received it first? What was their situation? This could help us understand the wording that the author uses. What's the style, the literary style of Genesis? Is it history? Is it prophecy? Is it poetry? Is it apocalyptic? Is it like a letter? What style or genre are we reading here when we read Genesis? What's the purpose of the book? And in particular for our study, what's the purpose of these first 11 chapters? What's significant about these chapters? And how do they play a role in the whole of what God reveals in his whole word? So with these questions, let's work through and answer them so we're ready to really tackle the chapters before us. First, who wrote Genesis? The prophet Moses is credited rightly with writing Genesis, as well as the first five books of the Bible. In fact, most often, Moses is said to be the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books. Not too often, except for maybe in modern times, would you pull out whether he wrote Genesis and how he wrote Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's he wrote the Pentateuch or the books of Moses or the Torah is what we refer to it as. 
And for eons, this was always understood to be the case that Moses penned the Pentateuch, and especially we're focusing now in particularly on Genesis. He wrote these and they were collected upon his death, and then they were held by Israel in sacred form for all this time, even to our day. By the time the New Testament came, there was widespread agreement. There was really no critical voice against the idea that Moses wrote it. We know Moses records himself as the author. He's writing to display what happened. Uh, It's not a story of himself, so he writes it as such, but we see he is the author. In Exodus 17, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In Deuteronomy, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Joshua records, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, So the Jews collectively and unanimously believe Moses to have written the Pentateuch. Leading into the New Testament era, there was virtually no critical voice against Mosaic authorship. And of course, Jesus himself believed Moses as the author of these opening books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. In John 5, the Lord Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He speaks of Moses' prophetic utterances about the coming Messiah in the Pentateuch. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is recorded as saying, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, referring right from the Pentateuch, what Moses wrote, and what he experienced. That account when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with individuals who don't yet know it's the risen Jesus, and then he reveals himself, and it records in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Paul, too, of course, knows Moses to be the author in Romans 10. Paul writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Moses, who is Moses? Well, he is a very, very highly trained and well-educated person. He's learned in the Egyptian systems of reading and writing, the best in the world at that time. And he was easily the most educated person in Israel when God raised him up to lead Israel out of bondage to Egypt and eventually to record the Word of God to that point. This is the Moses we're speaking of. Now, who were the original recipients of Genesis? This is an important starting question. It helps us when we have trouble understanding, why did the author say this? Well, who is he writing to? That can often help us gather that information. Now, we know Moses is the author, so it makes identifying the original audience pretty easy compared to other passages or books that may be more challenging. Moses wrote not too long after he had been delivered from Egypt. It's not to say that he didn't have some source materials that had been given to him, uh, but the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses to pen this or collect this and put it in its form, its final form, this happened after the exodus from Egypt. 
Most scholars say it's, it's probably reasonable to assume during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is when the Pentateuch took the form that we know it. Certainly, he wrote Genesis during this time. So his initial audience would have been those Israelites who had just been rescued out of slavery from Egypt. So think of the worldview they would have had after 400 years of being enslaved to a nation like Egypt, all the Egyptian religion and philosophy they had been steeped in. It's not to say they all believed it, and it's not to say that they had no knowledge of the content of the Pentateuch that led up to their point. It's just that it hadn't been in written form yet uh, to be read over and over again and sung and memorized and all the things that it happened with Scripture after it was penned. So here they are coming out of slavery, 400 years in Egyptian culture and religion, steeped in polytheism, the belief in many gods, pantheism, that there's divine in everything, even matter, superstitions, temples, pyramids, curses, pharaohs who called themselves gods. They were used to a sense of chaos with competing gods working against each other with vengeance or love or jealousy. This is what they had seen the Egyptians do. This is what they had heard taught. This is what they saw worshipped. And for themselves, they were worthless slaves, totally disposable. No value or dignity in humankind at all, and especially them, these slaves under the Egyptians' rule. Total, totally disposable at any moment. So this is the Israel who had just escaped from Egypt. Now they've come to the other side, of, to other side of the Red Sea to Sinai, and it's in this period of time that Moses is laying out for them who God really is and who they really are. And you could see the importance of having this framed for them as they go on to live the lives that God calls them to. And for Israel, there's a very specific call they're going to have. So they're going to have to grasp who their identity is as the covenant people of God, far different from what they had learned in Egypt about themselves and about the world. The Egyptian religious systems, I want to say just a little more about so we can appreciate especially how Moses, by inspiration of the Spirit, frames those opening chapters. The Egyptian religious system was one of disarray, disorder, unpredictability, constant superstition, fear of what the various gods would do. And we have at our disposal um, various accounts of how the Egyptians and other civilizations describe the world to begin. This is something everybody has searched out for all of their existence as societies and communities. There's the tale of Adapa. There's the Atrasis epic. There's the Gilgamesh epic, the Enuma Elish. There are about a dozen different ancient accounts of how the world began. Now, even a basic Bible student could take the account of Genesis and hold it next to the Enuma Elish, and you would recognize the difference. One is very fantastical. It reads almost like, it's a myth. It reads like a mythological explanation of the way things began. And these other forms have lots of overlaps, lots of things that that are similar to each other, but just change the names of the gods, different rivalries between the gods. And some of them are longer than others. Um, It's an explanation that you read and you can tell this is a, a mythology. It's not meant to be taken in a literal sense. It's definitely something that just describes that society's place of primacy usually. It's usually a defense for why the certain people are in control at the time they're in control. So this is known among the Israelites, for sure, at least at some level. And this was the backdrop that Moses is writing against. Genesis written to the first Israelites 
that came out of Egypt. On the whole, they lacked clarity about who God was, who they were, and the purpose that they were there for. Now, it's important to say that Genesis isn't isn't meant to be um, a technical cosmogony, although what it says we can trust to be true. It's not providing a resource-level work on taxonomy or biology, but we can be sure what it says is accurate. What it's describing is accurate. It's our effort to decide what is it being described, what is being described. Not to read too much in or not read, or to read too little in as well. Genesis is definitely a straightforward explanation of who God is, what he did in creating the heavens and the earth and all that occupies these. It gives us the explanations we need for our purpose and for who man is in relationship to God. Fundamental foundations before us in this book. Now, what's the style that Genesis is written in? You might think that would be the easiest question to answer, but that's one of the most difficult. Gen- Genesis is so unique in how it, is, how it communicates, how it's written, the forms that it takes. It is truly one of the most sophisticated works of literature ever written. It's not straight history in the way that Kings and Samuel are written, although it provides an historic account for sure. It's not strictly prophetic, although it provides predictions and pictures that eventually come to pass concerning Israel and the Messiah. Genesis is not poetry to be taken in some uh, purely symbolic sense, but there are beautiful poetic phrases that are laced throughout by the author. Genesis gives no indication like those other works that it's meant to be taken mythologically or apocalyptically even. Subsequent interpreters, including many other Old Testament writers after the Pentateuch, as well as Jesus and the apostles, they take Genesis as the true account of Moses and, Moses and what Moses displays and was given by God. In a real sense, we could say Genesis is its own genre. There's very little in ancient or modern literature that compares. The best Bible scholars have done well, I think, to describe Genesis as a sort of exalted narrative, the telling of a story that's in an exalted form. Some will say it's an exalted prose narrative that shows a successive or a succession of events that God unfolds through 1 through 11 for sure, and even throughout the lives of the patriarchs. So exalted prose narrative might be the technical way we describe Genesis. You say, what does that matter? Let's just get, get on with it. Just appreciate the complexity of what we're studying here, the divine masterpiece that it is. I think that respect will help us be humble as we come to the passage. It's a challenging passage to unpack. In fact, of all the books I've studied uh, here at Redeemer, I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to Genesis, but here I'm at Genesis, and I can tell you that the materials about Genesis are far and away more than any other book I've ever seen or studied. There's so much material out there on the content of this incredible exalted prose narrative called Genesis, written by the Holy Spirit of God using the person of Moses against the backdrop of post-Exodus Israel. Here we are in the beginning with foundations and generations. What's the purpose of the first 11 chapters then of Genesis? Well, these opening chapters set the stage ultimately for Israel from whom the Messiah would come. But the early chapters just get us to the point where Israel starts. But it's beginning to set the stage for Israel's development. Because the people who are receiving it, Israel, 
right after the Exodus, have to know from whence they've come. What's their purpose? Who their God is? The sin problem. What The answer to the sin problem is, and then Abraham comes on the scene. Who is God? Who is man and woman? What is marriage? What is family? What is the purpose of man? Who is the devil? What is sin? What is the result of sin? You think there's some important stuff here? There's a lot of important. This is, this is the answer to so much what the world desperately needs. Foundations and generations. One scholar quantifies the opening chapters of Genesis this way. Genesis 1 through 11 sets the stage for the mission of Israel to live as God's treasured people and thereby to be the vehicle of blessing to the rest of the world. There is one God who made all there is and who made man in his own image. He entered into a special relationship with the first human beings, a relationship that was broken. Mankind began to spread over all the earth. The stories of the flood and the Tower of Babel have a similar import. All mankind accountable to one God who made them and not to any fancy of their own devising. And God is fully capable of bringing his judgment down on any people anywhere. But judgment is really only the back cloth. All mankind belongs to God. And the Pentateuch focuses on God's merciful and persistent efforts at recovering not just one ethnic group, Israel, but a call to the whole of mankind. Kent Hughes said much more succinctly, Genesis contains the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. In the first 11 chapters alone provide most of these pillars, and everything else is an unfolding of it. Steinman, the commentator on Genesis, said the themes found in the first, uh, first in Genesis grow throughout the rest of the Old Testament until they bud and flower in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. So with that introduction to the message of Genesis 1 through 11, let's look at the first two verses. Let's start with the first two verses. We'll come back to these already again next week, but they set up, or they give us a prologue, if you will, of what will unfold. It gives us the subject of the whole thing right out of the gate. Maybe you can guess what that subject is. In the beginning, God. That's the subject. God is the subject. He is the subject of Genesis. He is the subject of the Bible. God is the subject. Let's consider the message as these verses unfold. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So much here already in these two verses to begin the book, to begin the Bible. God always was, we learn. We learn that God created everything out of nothing. He pre-exists everything. He made everything out of nothing. God was and is personally involved with his creation. He makes the heavens and the earth, and he hovers over the face of the deep in this beginning stage before day one starts. God always was. He created everything out of nothing. He was and is personally involved with creation. And all of this leads to an important application, an important point that we will take away from this that seems so basic, I shouldn't have to say, but I have to repeat it to myself. We are answerable to the one who created us. He is the maker and he is the judge. He is the creator and he is the king. 
First, let's look at the initial phrase, in the beginning, God. So the beginning, in there was God already. He is the eternal one. God is the subject of the first line of the Bible. God always was. And here the word for God is Elohim, which you may have heard. It's a plural form for God. This could mean that right from the beginning, the author's expressing of the tri, that triunity of God. It at least means a plural of majesty, that this term Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, there was God already. God was there at the beginning. It didn't say in the beginning God was created or began. At, in the beginning, God was. He already was there. The beginning of time itself, God was there before time began. Later, Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, but he also wrote one of the Psalms, maybe more, but he wrote Psalm 90 for sure. And listen to what he says in reflection. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses acknowledges God to be the eternal one. He, in the face of polytheism, in the face of the Egyptian God idea, No, the God, Elohim, Yahweh God, Israel's God, the true God, always was. Before all the stuff that you talk about, made up, and speak of in mythological terms. He created, but he himself had no origin. In the beginning is a statement that locates the creation of space, matter, and time when God, including the person of God the Son we know from the New Testament, already was there. God always existed. Now, this is important as we start to be confronted with modern notions of materialism. Now, when I say materialism or naturalism, I don't mean by materialism the sense in which we like to accumulate stuff for ourselves. We're materialists and we care about accumulating stuff and money and stuff. That's not what I mean. I'm talking more of the scientific materialism that's dominated um, scientific teaching in most universities and secular institutions for the last 150 years. That's the materialism I'm talking about. It's the idea that matter or material is eternal or it's superior. It's always been around. I'll simplify it for the purposes of this explanation. I know it's more complex, but basically you have two views that happen in the world out there. There's the view that the Bible describes is that God is before material and he creates everything. Then there's the view that really has dominated uh, from the Carl Sagan era, even to Stephen Hawking, who still believe this. The universe or material, that's eternal. That's always been. In most university settings, they presuppose that material is, is eternal. It's always been. I'll come back to that in a bit. But what we have here, the Bible saying, is that's not the case. That God predates the material, and he made the material. Again, we'll return to that in a moment. When te- the text says that God was in the beginning, before creation, it sets him apart from creation, and therefore apart from the matter of which all else is made. A.W. Pink, who I referred to earlier, says it well. The opening sentence of the Bible, in the beginning God, it repudiates atheism, it postulates the existence of God, it refutes materialism, it distinguishes between God and his material creation. It also abolishes pantheism, the idea that the divine's in everything, for it predicates that which necessitates a personal God, a personal God who relates with all the creation not the creation is God. In the beginning, God created, tells us that he was himself before the beginning and hence eternal. 
Now, this leads us to the second point that we can derive from these opening verses. God created how? He created out of nothing. He made everything that there is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's everything. He created the universe. That's the point of that simple sentence. From the vantage point of the earth where the Israelites would have been, he created those stars that you're laying on the desert floor at night in the wilderness, and you could see the vast expanse of the stars. God created the heavens and the sand you feel under you. He created the earth. He created all of it out of nothing. He made it. Ex nihilo is the Latin that we use to describe God creating everything out of nothing. Now, let's return to this notion of materialism, because many of you students, this is what you'll hear. Um, Most in your professions, if you deal in science, you're going to hear the basis of what is being taught or considered on the basis of materialistic, a materialistic understanding, uh, that material is, in fact, eternal in some way. It always has been. That's been the dominant view for some time, but look at the passage. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is creation out of nothing, and this is an attack at first on the polytheism of the Egyptians and the pantheism of the Egyptians. One God responsible for all of it out of nothing, he made it all. But it also accomplishes something else today. It confronts materialism, the idea that matter is somehow eternal, that the universe always has been. It confronts that kind of naturalism. That's the foundation of today's Darwinianism. It's dominated for some time. It's interesting because you recall, and most of you will remember, Carl Sagan said famously what? The cosmos is all there is or was or ever shall be. That is scientific materialism. And brothers and sisters, that takes more faith than anything we're doing here today. To come up with that. That you could look at everything, its design, its intricacy, its the enormity of it, the inexhaustibility of it, our inability to really understand any of it at any level. When we think we do, we don't. And you're telling me that that always has been? And I'm the religious one? At any rate, that's What's said, and Hawking said the exact same thing. Before he died, the universe is all there was. The universe is God. Not a personal God, Hawking said, but the universe is God. What he meant was, that's what always has been. They have to go somewhere with the beginnings. We're saying we can't know that as people. We can know there is a God by nature. So God tells us by his word and proves himself by his word over and over and over again. Who's the one that's really exercising more faith? I don't think it's us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did so out of nothing. Where did it all come from? So students, you won't get far and you'll fail your class, but keep asking, where did it come from? Where did it come from? Where, it always was? How, see, that won't get much play, but I'm telling you that that's the big dilemma that stretches modern science. I won't belabor scientific points much because I'm not a physicist or a geneticist or anything like it, but I've read enough on it to recognize the issue that's going on in modern times. Even though materialism is the basis for what most modern scientific theory works off of, honest scientists who are not Christians, who do not believe in the Bible, just recognizing evidences, 
have been picking away at this idea for some 30 years now. It's mostly ignored because it creates a big problem. But there are two foundational points that help really critique this idea of materialism that have come that any one of you can check out. In the area of physics is the first one, in the area of genetics is the other one. These are areas you can relate with immediately. And honest scientists today are saying this has caused quite a problem for materialism, Darwinian materialism. The physics problem happened when they discovered uh, telescopes that could see into the galaxies. When they could see all these galaxies that exist out there, now you've got the issue of a spreading universe. Well, that does not fit well with an eternal matter that's bound up and somehow self-regenerating. Instead, it's showing itself to be spreading out and degrading. I mean, that's what the scientists themselves are saying is happening. That's the physics side. But then the genetic side, very interestingly, not too many years ago, the Human Genome Project discovered all sorts of things about genetics. And here's the bad news, brothers and sisters and people of Earth. Our genetics are getting worse. They continually degrade. Your genetics are not better than they were 100 years ago. Now, we've discovered many things that have helped us deal with the things that we have confront us. But you notice the age, the age uh, anticipation or age expectancy has not gone up. We are genetically breaking down. That's what the Human Genome Project shows. In other words, things get worse over time. They don't get better over time. They degrade. They decay. O man of death, as the scripture says. O universe of death. O man of death. It's degrading. That's what the science is actually saying. Now, I'm not reading into the Bible this science. I'm just saying the scientists who claim materialism that Genesis 1 confronts, they themselves are finding it to be a problem. In fact, in the 1980s, the well-known... Uh, aeroscientist and physicist, Robert Jastrow, not a believer by his own admission, looked at what was happening in science and was dismayed that the scientists themselves weren't being honest about the actual display against materialism. Listen to what he says. You may have heard part of the quote, but listen to the whole of the quote. There is a kind of religion in science. True. It is the religion of a person who believes there is order and harmony in the universe. Every event can be explained in a rational way as the product of some previous event. This religious faith of the scientist is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning under conditions in which the known laws of physics are not valid. And he's talking about how it started and went out. That's how he would describe it. And that does not comport with what they were saying up to that point. As a product of forces and circumstances that we can discover somehow. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation, he says very humbly. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream, Jastrow says. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that is out there and everything that is down here is created by God out of nothing. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, do you know that it's 100,000 light years across? Just the Milky Way, not our solar system, our Milky Way. Our solar system is one of 5,000 solar systems in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is a galaxy. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years wide. That's 600 trillion miles across. 
and according to those observing through these telescopes, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is only one of hundreds of thousands of such galaxies. Some say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. And God created every speck, every piece of dust, and every grain of sand in all the universe out of nothing. The Israelites knew darkness as they lay in the wilderness, and they saw the light of the stars that they slept under, as they felt the sand at their back, and they knew that God created it all. And that God was their covenant God who was caring for them. In the book of Job, God interacts with man who thinks he knows it all. Who determined its measurements? God asks man, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? He's talking about who made the heavens and the earth. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, you weren't there when I did all this. In Psalm 19, David wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. It's interesting, the word in Hebrew for breath here connects closely to the word for spirit, breath and spirit. And then if you look at verse 2, our passage, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It was vast as of yet formless and void when he first creates. The heavens and the earth were emptied at this point of God's initial creation. At the moment of initial creation, it was uninhabited and uninhabitable, apparently. Darkness spread over the earth and the deep or the sea. The earth is described basically like a lump of clay in the hand of the potter who is about to start doing his forming. While there was a formlessness at the first, God was very present in overseeing all of it. We know, as the author of Hebrews said, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This out of nothing, God creates it all, and he is very personally involved. Look at verse 1, God created, that's person, the, the, the supreme eternal being creates personally, and then, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters as one who's like a bird brooding over her nest. That's the description. Fluttering over the face of the deep. Kent Hughes says the Spirit of God fluttered like a nurturing bird over the dark in preparation for day one. Kidner said Genesis confronts us with the living God who is unmistakably personally applying himself to creation. The Spirit of God was moving, was hovering, brooding over What does this mean? All of what I've said, what is displayed in these opening verses. What's the application of this? What does it mean for you and I sitting here? Well, very, very simply, if this is true, that God is the creator, then we are, as creatures, answerable to the creator in some fashion. If he had never revealed himself to us, we would stand knowing that we didn't make ourselves, but we'd want to know who made us. We couldn't know. We'd never know fully, just that there was something that made us. But because of God's grace, he reaches to us so that we might know him 
in how we could be related with him again. And that's the story that unfolds in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, it's God. Now I'm paying close attention because I've got to do what this God says. He's the one who made me. There's only one God, the creator and sovereign of all, the maker, the judge. So brothers and sisters, all of our considerations have to start with reference to God. That's not weak or superstitious or old-fashioned or primitive. That is the smart thing to do when you know there's a creator. All of our consultations should start with God. All matters of life have an essential connection to God. We must begin our acknowledgments with the reality of the creator who is our sovereign. A person is not weak or primitive who begins with the reality of God. A person is rather purposed and wise who starts their contemplations with the fact of God's existence. God, the supreme one, our God, our covenant God, reveals himself as he does through scripture. Simply to apply these first two verses in this major truth, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we could turn to the children's catechism and it would help us with everything we need. The first five questions in the children's catechism really nailed down the application of God created the heavens and the earth. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. That's a huge opening to the meaning of life in the world that most people don't know. Super smart people strive their whole life and they can't come to grips with their purpose. Our purpose is for his glory, just as we read in the longer version earlier. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? We'd want to know that question. By loving him and doing what he commands. Why ought you to glorify God? Because he made me. And he takes care of me. That's really it. He made us and he takes care of us. Let's do what he says. That's the calling. That's the obvious application. So, with this introduction, as we consider Genesis and all it lays down in such grandiose terms, so much more basic for all of us as we walk out of here. Your God loves you and he takes care of you. Ask yourself the question every day this week, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want my life submitted to you, whether it be the relationships I'm in, the associations I have, the job I take, the conversations I involve myself with, where I go to college, where I go to school, how we interact with my friends, how we look at things that are going on in the world. I want to start with you, God, because you made it all. Me and all things. And you take care of me. Moses said, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, as we start studying this book of beginnings, please take proper placement in our lives where we may have been overlooking you or taking you for granted. You are the subject of the first line of scripture and the main subject of the whole of history and including our lives. Lord, may we recognize this in our lives today, this week, each member here, each young person here, thinking about what these profound catechism questions have captured as truths from your word. Why ought we glorify you, O Lord? Because you made us. 
and you take care of us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together respond by turning to a a suitable hymn for sure for this topic. 122, we'll sing the first two verses as our hymn of response. Let's stand and sing, God all nature sings thy glory as the elders come to prepare the table.